Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture, and thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you letting us be part of your day. Much to talk about today. Obviously, the big story continues to be the coronavirus outbreak. Each day, it seems to impact our lives uh, more and more. We're going to be looking at it, of course, uh, from different perspectives. Um, Today, we're going to talk with a senior vice president with the National Rural Health Association. The rural health care system is already challenged and strained in many ways. How is it preparing for uh, what may be coming in the next uh, few days or weeks? We don't know as far as... uh, dealing with the coronavirus how is the system prepared we'll talk about that also there's uh, the issue of labor for agriculture it's a huge issue and that could be strained even more by the coronavirus we're going to be talking about that with the national pork producers council and the national milk producers federation and uh, there's a full court press being applied by agriculture and the biofuels industry on the administration to not appeal that 10th circuit court ruling on small refinery exemptions we'll talk with the CEO the National Biodiesel Board a little bit later on about that ongoing issue. So we have lots going on. Let's start it off with Paul Blyberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, thank you for joining us. Uh, The ag labor issue, it's a critical issue. Uh, It's a concern that's been going on for some time now. There's a chance to address it with uh, some legislation. It passed in the House legislation being worked on in the Senate. What can you tell us? What's the latest? Well, thanks, Mike, for having me on. And uh, this definitely continues to be a critical, critical issue for us. And actually, this week, we did have our our March board meeting here in town, and we also flew in a number of other members. And both yesterday and today, we are on Capitol Hill on the Senate in particular, urging senators to come together to pass a bipartisan ag labor bill that embodies our two priorities, uh, passing a a bill that includes a permanent legal status for our current ag workers and reforming the H-2A program so that dairy can use the program. As we've talked about before, the current guest worker program doesn't allow dairy to be included because we're a year-round sector, and we don't have stability and certainty around our current workforce. So wanting to solve both of those problems has been a major goal for us for a while. As you noted, the House passed a bipartisan measure that included both of those goals. That wasn't totally perfect on the details, but we can keep working on that as we go through the process. And our hope is that the Senate takes a similar approach and moves something forward where we can get something done. So what is the approach of the Senate? How would it differ perhaps from the House and how much support is there to get something done in the Senate? Well, we don't know exactly how anything would differ from the House. I think in terms of differences, it would much be more on the granular details than the broad themes would certainly be our hope. I think our hope would be to have a bill that in broad terms addresses the same major goals that the House bill addressed. Um, We sense that there's a lot of support from senators in both parties, but obviously it is an election year. You noted a minute ago the coronavirus outbreak is obviously uh, consuming a lot of oxygen everywhere, but especially here in the Capitol as members try to figure out what needs to be done on the policy side to deal with that issue. So we we know there's a lot going on and a lot of competing pressures, uh, but given the window of opportunity we feel we have with the House acting, we have to keep pushing, and we know there's there's reception on both sides, and it's just a matter of can can things align and get done. 
The coronavirus may actually bring even more attention to the ag labor situation. If you have workers uh, sick and able to go to work uh, and already a shortage of labor to begin with, at, that threatens uh, a lot of the supply chain, a lot of areas uh, in our food supply system. That's right, and I think you've heard others in ag talking about that this week as well, and so perhaps there's a spotlight to be put on that aspect of the issue, and we'll be continuing to push in the couple of next few weeks. Is there any kind of a timetable in the Senate? As you said, obviously they're, they've got a lot of other things on their plate at this point, but has anything, is, are we close a, to some legislation? Well, I don't know that there's a formal timetable. I think our I think our sense is that something would have to get really done before the summer because you get into the summer and then you really get into political season and the Republican and Democratic national conventions. And you know, obviously we don't know what's going to happen with those as far as coronavirus is concerned, but just the closer you get to the election, the tougher it gets to do anything legislative other than the basic keeping the lights on and things like that. So I think we really do hope that here in the spring there's an opportunity. Uh, we don't know exactly what the likelihood of legislation being put forward soon is. I think we hope in the next few weeks to, for a bipartisan process to continue, but uh, obviously there is a fairly short window there before things become uh, all consumed with the election. So. Give, give us an idea of, of how this impacts the dairy industry. Um, you mentioned dairy is a little different than, say, uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, those are seasonal workers. You're talking about year-round employees needed. Uh, tell us how, how the dairy industry is being impacted right now by this labor shortage. Sure. Well, well, we're impacted in a couple of ways. You know, obviously, we, we have a current workforce, and there's, there's there's obviously just a lack of stability around that workforce. And current workers are huge parts of not just the, the farms that they're on, but the communities that they're a part of. And so we think it's very, very important that part of this legislation that Congress passed provide a permanent legal status to keep our current workers here and not have them be in limbo. On the other side, the H-2A program, as you mentioned, we're a year-round sector. We milk cows every single day of the year in dairy. The H-2A program doesn't allow year-round workers to be hired on farms, and so it's imperative for us that we modify that program so that we can use it, because right now we don't have access to any guest worker program in the dairy industry to ensure that we have a future flow of workers to meet what we know is going to be a continued need, so that's why that's so imperative. Critics of the House bill called it amnesty, and that's boy that that sets up red flags uh, immediately. Uh, why is it? Why is what you're working on not amnesty? What's the difference here? Well, you know, there are requirements in the House bill for folks to follow to get right with the law. And um, I think when that word gets thrown around, obviously it scares a lot of people and they say, okay, I can't touch this, it's amnesty. And then once that word is out there, it's very difficult to push it aside, even if it's not true. And obviously we work very hard with the House bill sponsors to explain the offices, here's why this bill is not amnesty, here are the things you have to follow, the steps you have to take. And if you get the blue card legal permanent residence, you're not on some kind of expedited special pathway to becoming a citizen, you're just in line with everybody else who has permanent residence status. So we really did try to explain the people that there are provisions in the bill that require one to get right with the law in different respects um, rather than this just being a blanket, you know, you get the green card on day one or something like that. And But th- that kind of gets lost in the broader messaging that people use sometimes when they're trying to advocate against moving something forward. And so that word is very potent, unfortunately, in, in any aspect of the immigration debate, not just the ag one. Is it an overstatement to say this issue threatens our ability to, to produce our own food? It is not, and that's the case not just in dairy, but in in other sectors of ag as well. And, you know, we had a good conversation in our board this week with different folks in our membership and folks on Capitol Hill, and, uh, you know, we 
we talk about trade and immigration as being a couple of our top issues, and I think somebody made a great point about market access and all the markets we want to have access to, and it's great to have those opportunities to sell our products, not just here, but worldwide as well, but we can't take advantage of that if we don't have the labor force to produce the product. And so the two really do go hand in hand, and it is really essential that we, uh, that we get this done. Yep, critical issue. Paul, thank you very much for the update. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Paul Bleiberg, Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. The pork industry also weighing in on this labor issue. We'll talk with Jim Monroe with the National Pork Producers Council about that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. I want to continue our discussion now on the ag labor issue. Joining us is Jim Monroe, Assistant Vice President, Communications for the National Pork Producers Council. Jim, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know pork industry, part of the, the ag coalition, speaking out on this need for ag labor reform. What specifically would you like to see? What does the pork industry need to see out of this? Thanks for having me, Mike. Well, um, as I think you know, the the U.S. pork sector and all of agriculture really has suffered from a, a labor shortage for some time now. Um, I think as of January, we had, what, a 3.6% unemployment rate. If you look at some of our uh, pork production communities, you know, places where we have plants, you can see uh, unemployment as low as 2.6%. Uh, and, you know, we're dependent on foreign labor, and we need, we have needed for a while uh, visa reform that uh, serves the needs of non-seasonal agriculture, like pork production, and gives us better access access to an immigrant workforce. Right now, the programs that are in place are really designed for seasonal agriculture, and they just don't, they just don't meet the needs of U.S. pig farmers. So that's, um, that's the, the, the primary issue with the COVID-19 spread. Uh, we're just concerned about the issue being exacerbated. Uh, industry analysts were already looking at um, a squeeze come September where we don't have it. We need, we need workers to be running uh, second shifts during the weekday, running Saturday shifts to um, uh, based on the, 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 on the supply that's coming to market. And uh, we just don't have the workers to, uh, to deal with that. And COVID-19 can, could accelerate that challenge. Jim, even though we've been talking about it in agriculture circles for some time, I I have a feeling that the general population of this country still does not understand or realize how dependent our food supply system really is on foreign workers. Well, it's certainly true, and uh, it's there's a dependence on foreign workers and. 
the other thing that many consumers in America might not think might not think about is you know telecommuting works for many industries. It, it doesn't work for agriculture. We need workers in our barns taking care of pigs, feeding pigs. Uh, we need folks transporting pigs to plants. We need workers and inspectors at the plants uh, supporting the the uh, harvesting process. And um, it's, a, it's a major challenge right now for the industry. I mentioned this earlier in the show, but the coronavirus outbreak really threatens an already challenged ag labor situation, right? I mean, if we have a shortage of workers already, and now you're looking at the possibility of uh, some of those workers not being able to work because they're sick, then that, that creates a bigger issue for the food supply system. Absolutely. It's yeah, whether they're sick or um, their kids' schools have closed as a precautionary measure, and that prevents obviously parents from going to work. Um, and it's not just in the plants; it's on our farms. Uh, again, we need people in our barns and in the plants. And you know, the the idea that we would have market-ready hogs with nowhere to go is really a nightmare uh, for for our, our producers. And that's what we're trying to get ahead of. But that is a possibility, isn't it? I think it's a real possibility, and it's not, you know, it's a uh, a food supply issue. Um, it's also an issue for animal welfare. Um, you know, uh, if we don't have enough workers to take care of the pigs in the barns, that obviously creates another problem for our for our animals. Um, so we're looking for, you know, visa reform um, uh, in, in an expedited fashion. We're looking for federal, state, and local governments to work together. Obviously, their number one priority is protecting public health, but you know, we want some focus on on plans to support animal care um, and minimize disruptions to the pork production supply chain. And, you know, we've also asked the administration in a letter that we sent to the president, to all members of Congress, um, to other administration officials, to state governors, you know, we need to be looking at plans to support hog farmers if labor-related bottlenecks in the supply chain prevent hogs from being marketed. It's something we need to be thinking about now. We're talking with Jim Monroe with the National Pork Producers Council. So, Jim, uh, give us your thoughts on on the the bill being worked on or the legislation being worked on in the Senate. Uh, how close is it? Do you think? Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not sure. I have an answer to that question. I think it's a you know it's a step in the. Um, and are you? Re- I'm sorry, Mike. Are you referring to the labor bill? Yes, the the, the ag labor yeah, bill. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's a step in the right direction. I think it has some flaws in that it does not apply to plants, and there's, you know, there's a ceiling on workers that we'd prefer not be there. Um, but again, any step in the in the direction that gives us better access to uh, foreign workers and a, and a more sustained, viable uh, pool of, of workers is, is a step in the right direction. Well, we know how this process works. They got to pass something in the Senate. They have to go to conference and then come up with a final bill and, and on to the president. So it it would take time, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen right away. Yeah, unfortunately, that 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 you know the process you described is the one we have to follow. Um, uh, but you know, we're we're in uh, unique times, and hopefully, we can find solutions to some of these issues sooner rather than later. And I'm, I brought this up in the earlier segment. I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, it's frustrating to not be able to get something specifically done for ag labor because of the overall concerns in this country 
and the differences of opinion on immigration and and the the word amnesty gets thrown out there and that seems to shut everything down uh, but this seems like a specific area that could be addressed and 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 at least helped if not solved uh, help the situation but it seems to get caught up in the bigger debate that's exactly right the larger uh, discussions on immigration i think have stalled this you know, we want to see the opportunity for, we're, we're already dependent on, on foreign workers. Um, these are jobs that many Americans, um, you know, aren't, aren't interesting in serving in. Um, you know, you've got just a smaller uh, or a shrinking population of potential workers in rural America already. And, you know, we want to see visas that allow workers from other countries to, to come here to be a part of our communities um, to get integrated with them. Um, we have seen the, the benefits of that in the past. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's good for those who come here to work on our farms or work in our plants. It's good for our economy. Um, and we're, we're dependent on those workers. So um, we hope, hopefully we can get some focus on that particular issue and, and, and move on it sooner rather than later. Jim, every day we're seeing the, the coronavirus impacting more and more uh, aspects of our lives and different events being canceled or altered in some way. Are you having discussions about World Pork Expo? I mean, as far as we know, it's still on, right, for June? Uh, are, you, oh. are you looking or are you making preparations, uh, contingency plans or things like that? World Pork Expo is on for June in, in Des Moines. Uh, we're obviously going to we're going to monitor the coronavirus situation continuously, and uh, but our plans are to hold the event right now. Okay, so it is still on. Wanted to get that message yes. out. Uh, yes. uh, as far as are you hearing from producers uh, concerned about the on back on the labor situation, the coronavirus, and how it could impact their operations now? Oh, it's a. Uh, there's significant concern with not with producers and with our pork plants. I mean, we're we're not seeing any you know material impact now because of COVID-19, but um, you you can see emerging issues with school closures and plant communities and um, and as I said earlier, it's just something we want to get ahead of. Um, it's it's and and you know even aside from COVID-19, we were already looking at by September having a real, uh, real challenge with uh, getting hogs to market and having enough uh, shackle space in our plants to to process them. So uh, it is it is a significant concern for our producers and for our plants. All right, Jim. Thank you for the update. We'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Jim Monroe, Assistant Vice President, Communications for the National Pork Producers Council. So, again, each day uh, we see how COVID-19 is impacting our lives, and uh, it's just kind of been a ripple effect uh, throughout the economy and affecting different areas in different ways. Uh, Certainly our food supply system and our food supply chain very much impacted uh, by this as well. So there's a lot to, to look at here. Coming up next, we're going to talk with the National Rural Health Association. Uh, the rural health care system has many challenges already, as we've often talked about with hospital closings and doctor shortages and things like that. How is the rural health system prepared to handle COVID-19, this outbreak that uh, could in many places cause a real overload of the healthcare system. What about in rural America? How prepared are we? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, as concerns over the coronavirus continue to uh, to spread, uh, how do we deal with it, and what are the options, and are how prepared are we? Uh, let's take a look at our rural healthcare system. Joining us now is Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, what can you tell us about? preparations underway with the rural health care system to deal with the coronavirus? Well, I'm pleased to say that the nation's uh, roughly 1,844 rural hospitals are doing an excellent job in uh, uh, reviewing their policies for uh, emergencies and pandemic response and are making the necessary um, uh, provisions to meet demands possibly that we might experience in surge uh, capacity coming uh, ahead uh, that, that might happen going forward. We know the rural health care system is challenged. We we hear about hospitals closing and uh, the, the distance that many people in rural America have to go for health care. Does that just make the challenge even greater in a situation like this? Yeah, Mike, it, it really does. Uh, the, the number of closures of ho- rural hospitals since 2010 total now 126. Um, this is, of course, capacity that we've uh, uh, is ended uh, in many areas that might need those beds for uh, a possible surge of capacity, a surge in need here coming forward. Uh, this has to do with um, the surge capacity is not just beds, actually, for rural hospitals. It's it's the needed technology, for example, ventilators and other uh, devices, medications, and workforce. So uh, it's it's a complicated problem. But um, like I said, those uh, planning procedures that our hospitals are in, are undergoing, I think, will be very helpful at um, mitigating some of the problems. There's a lot of attention being paid right now to being able to acquire test kits and how available are they. Uh, what are you hearing as far as uh, with your members in the rural health care system to be able to access that, that needed uh, uh, procedures and testing equipment? That's a real problem in addressing an issue of an epidemic because one of the critical needs that we have is understanding um, uh, the process of surveillance. Uh, we have to know who in the community is infected with a with this virus so that we can begin measures immediately to seclude them from the population and making sure they're not spreading it to other people. Um, So, yes, we're catching up in this country um, uh, uh, relative to other countries uh, in our testing capacity. Um, I am encouraged to report that it's my understanding that uh, LabCorp and Quest, which are two uh, major national um, laboratory testing companies, um, have begun their uh, point-of-care testing for uh, COVID-19 virus. Um, so this should be available to physicians and uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants all over the country 
uh, to be able to get tests uh, performed and results reported that will help with this uh, process of surveillance and uh, mitigation of the spread of the disease. We're talking with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Brock, um, what are you hearing from uh, your members uh, throughout the country, throughout rural America? Are they seeing a, a spike in uh, cases or or people wanting tested or checking on this? Uh, what, are, what are you hearing? I think at the moment, uh, when I talk with our hospitals, we find that uh, mostly concerned about uh, supplies. Uh, the supply chain for resources is uh, strained right now. Uh, hearing difficulties of getting adequate uh, provisions for personal protective equipment. Um, this is, of course, necessary for our, the employees of our healthcare institutions to uh, safely take care of patients that have uh, uh, respiratory infections. Uh, we're hearing also of some wide, widespread shortages of uh, medications, um, and uh, those are certainly concerning to us. Uh, and making sure that we have the proper number of IV bags and all of the all of the necessary requirements for patient care during a time of uh, of uh, increased demand. Uh, we all obviously want to take care of our healthcare workers, and I know uh, my colleagues in rural hospitals all over the country want to uh, do the best they can not only to um, assist with the health of their communities that they serve. But um, obviously, healthcare workers, if they're sick, uh, aren't going to be of any use to that process. So, so those are those are the concerns I've heard. But no, not as of yet. Um, in in the most of the country, has there been any surge of patients that uh, that I'm aware of? Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked before uh, about the challenges facing the rural healthcare system. Uh, perhaps something like this. Uh, will bring it more to people's attention, the the vulnerabilities, the challenges that we have, and the need to strengthen and to address these areas to strengthen our system. You're exactly right, and I appreciate you saying that because often it takes emergencies like this, unfortunately, uh, to focus our attention on the uh, needs of uh, rural America. And I know that looking um, you know, I think that it's important that access to care is uh, local and available to all citizens of the United States. And uh, it is critically important that, uh, and we value that uh, the workforce that we have in rural America producing the uh, food that we eat and the energy that we burn uh, to make this country go. And um, uh, Health care is a vital part of that. Uh, it's not only just access during times of uh, pandemic like we have with COVID-19, but it's also um, injuries and uh, emergencies. Uh, we know that it's dangerous to work on farms and uh, that we need to have uh, uh, access to emergency care that's close by and effective at uh, meeting the needs of the people that they serve. Brock, at a, at a time like this, when we're going through something like this, uh, there's there's a line. Sometimes it may be a fine line, but there's a line between panic and preparation. And I know that you're, you urge, as we all do, people to, to prepare, but not to panic. Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, the, the, one of the problems that creates panic is when we don't have information. And um, I think that getting the information at the right place at the right time is critically important. I think that one of the things will help uh, uh, allay some fear is the um, is getting the testing for COVID-19 
uh, more widely available and ready. In fact, uh, uh, there's a place in Washington, the University of Washington, is doing drive-by testing now. Um, so I, I think that often information is what people need, and once we can get that information to them, uh, it can allay a lot of fears. Uh, the the good, good news about this is what we've seen from China is that um, 80% of the population uh, re- has symptoms that don't require any interventions uh, or medic or any kind of hospitalization. Uh, so 80% of the population, even those affected, uh, will have minimal uh, notice of uh, of the disease, except maybe some discomfort. Uh, the other 20% uh, are distributed uh, to needing. Um, some special care through clinic visits, and then five to five percent or so, if I remember correctly, uh, may need hospitalization. And a certain subset of that uh, would need intensive care. So, so I think that the looking at it from that perspective, I think we can be self-assured. I do want to focus on one thing, though, that that's critically important. Each of us individually have an important part to play in this emergency. And that is that we pay attention to our own personal hygiene in making sure that we aren't the carriers so that uh, uh, we're not infecting other people. We don't want to get it ourselves. So that means washing our hands, covering our coughs, uh, social distancing, uh, making sure that when you're in places that uh, you don't shake hands, perhaps uh, create a new custom of uh, uh, elbow bumps. Uh, these are the kinds of things that we can do during this crisis individually that can uh, flatten that curve of uh, acuity in terms of disease and really help uh, all of us to uh, stay safe and uh, free from uh, this particular virus. And also, I would think to monitor others uh, that we know of that might be, you know, more isolated or you haven't heard from in a while, make sure they're okay. Absolutely, and that would... You know, I would call on communities, uh, the faith, uh, the faith-based institutions in our rural communities. I know are really strong. Uh, reaching out to the elderly and making sure that uh, you're keeping up with their needs uh, in your communities. Um, and, and sometimes these diseases, uh, this disease, can catch up on someone quickly, and in with hours, uh, someone could become uh, severely ill. And so uh, that's a very important point, and uh, that's what's so good about rural communities is a social safety net uh, that we have and uh, certainly makes a big difference in being able to uh, keep up with something like this. But back to your point, it affects different segments of our society and our population differently. Uh, So to make sure that help gets to those that need it most so we don't overload the system with people just... uh, uh, you know, that may not be at risk at that moment, but, uh, you know, are trying to take precautions, but they could also overload the system that keeps somebody that really needs the help from getting it. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, I would encourage uh, individuals that might be worried about uh, their health or think they might have it uh, uh, to call. Call your doctor's office or to call the hospital and seek uh, assistance and uh, uh, get advice on what to do. And uh, if you're concerned, uh, but most of the time, uh, like I said, for 80 percent of the people, uh, just uh, self-medicating and uh, doing the things you know to do when you have uh, a particular virus of any kind, uh, lots of fluids, uh, take some medications to treat the symptoms, uh, get plenty of rest, and um, uh, just take it easy. And that should be a, a good way to uh, mitigate some of the problems that individuals might have. Brock, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. 
Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So we're in a two-week waiting period now for the administration to decide whether or not they're going to appeal the Tenth Circuit Court ruling on small refinery exemptions to the renewable fuel standard. Meanwhile, the biofuels industry putting on a full-court press to urge the administration not to appeal that decision. Here to talk about that is Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Donnell, thank you for joining us. Um, we had hoped <laughs> we, we still wouldn't have this uncertainty. We, we kind of thought uh, the administration was leaning towards not appealing. Now it's still up in the air. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, the decision hasn't been made, so I guess that's uh, better than if, uh, if a wrong decision had been made. We're, we're certainly willing to wait for the administration to make the right decision, which is to follow the direction the Tenth Circuit's laid out and to uh, stop this practice of granting SREs to just about anybody who asks. Yeah, so you're, you're willing to wait, but you're also making it clear to the administration how strongly you feel about this. Absolutely. This is uh, our number one critical issue for our industry, for the biodiesel and renewable diesel industry for 2020. So uh, this decision is, is critical that we, ha- and that we have it made in the right way because it will return that certainty and the integrity to the RFS. You know, in our case, the RFS sets at least a, a bottom for the demand for our product. And so when there's uncertainty as to what those numbers are going to be, uh, it just has a, a very negative effect on the marketplace. Now, many feel that even if the administration appeals the decision, that it's unlikely to, that appeal is unlikely to be successful, but still it creates more uncertainty, uh, it delays things even more, right? Yes, and I think it also sends a signal to all of us in the biofuels industry and agriculture that maybe this administration isn't that serious about its uh, support for renewable fuels. This is, a, to us, a very simple decision. The courts have said the EPA has handled this incorrectly in the past. They have been very clear, the court has, about how the EPA should handle this. So uh, the administration should just accept that as, as the rule of law um, and, and enact it. Yeah, and I think an appeal would bring with it a certain amount of hypocrisy because EPA has been using a prior court decision to justify their generous granting of these exemptions, and now they wouldn't be willing to go along with this court ruling, which seems to hand them the blueprint for handling this moving forward. You're, you are exactly right, and of course we've made those same points as well, that uh, if the, the courts are there for a reason, we're all required to you know follow those uh, follow the orders of the of the courts, right? I mean, they do have the option, of course, to appeal, but uh, they have been picky when they have uh, decided to appeal and when they haven't. So we'd rather just see them, uh, you know, enact this order from the Tenth Circuit and let's move on down the road. We know what's at stake for the biofuels industry, but there's a political aspect to this as well because it is uh, an election year. The president finds himself in between two factions of his of his base uh, the oil industry and agriculture in general the biofuels industry in in particular it seems like he's been searching throughout his 
term in office for a win-win here to appease both sides, which he's not been able to do, it it would seem this brings us finally to crunch time, a decision that really should have been made a long time ago. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm not sure, you know, I've, I, I certainly understand where the president's coming from. Uh, everyone likes to find a win-win. But when you look at the goals and objectives of the RFS and you look at the goals and objectives the petroleum industry have, there's just not a lot of uh, common ground there. So I'm not sure this is a situation where, you know, he can find that. But I think most people would agree the, the oil and gas industry is doing well. They've been healthy for a long, long time. Uh, and uh, our industry is the one that's really still continuing to try to grow and mature. And so uh, if there's got to be a decision made on one side of the equation or the other, to me it seems very obvious. And we're talking about, with this court decision, the, which basically said that EPA is not following the law, the renewable fuel standard, in the way they're granting these exemptions. So the court saying that what you're doing is, is not legal, is not according to the law, it would seem to be your reaction would then be, well, let's get it right then and follow the law. Well, it certainly sounds logical to us as well, and that's what we've been uh, su- uh, suggesting and having conversations at that level about is uh, the law is the law. I think, in fact, I've even heard the president say something to, along that line. And so we're we're just uh, in full agreement, this, the Tenth Circuit, this has gone through a, a, a long-time process. This is not a, uh, um, this is not a, a case that's been just recently granted that's been sitting around for a long time this argument about how the EPA was handling those small refinery exemptions and granting them to companies who were not even eligible to receive an exemption in the first place based on the law of the RFS. And we're to the point, well, past the point, we need action rather than words. The words have been, this is going to be addressed. Thought you had a deal last fall. Uh, we thought just a few days ago with Secretary Purdue talking to farmers at different meetings that uh, we're going to see a fewer exemptions, a real change in this policy. Now, now all of a sudden, we're in this waiting period. Uh, we need actions rather than words. We do. And as I said earlier, though, you know, we're certainly willing to give it more time in order to get the right decision made. But if that extra time is just to allow the political elements and the political advocacy of the oil and gas industry to get deeply involved in this and, and basically second-guessing the courts, um, then uh, then there's no value in this extension whatsoever. So we're definitely watching, engaging very, very deeply with our champions on the Hill as well to make sure that everyone all the way up to the president knows there's a lot of people very interested in this decision and that it is going to have an impact on how the rural America and, and those of us in the biofuels industry view uh, this president. All right, Donnell, thank you very much. We'll continue to wait and see what they do uh, on the small refinery exemptions. It's always good to talk with you. Take care. Thank you. Same to you, Mike. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Um, There was a press briefing yesterday at a press event yesterday with the biofuel advocates and and agriculture groups speaking very strongly, uh, getting a message out to the administration about the importance of this decision and this issue to rural America. All right, coming up tomorrow, we'll have more on that, plus the ongoing uh, COVID-19 situation and uh, the reaction, the response that's going on and how it's impacting all of us. So hope you'll stay with us. Be safe. Thank you for joining us on AOA. AOA.